0: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 41. The Feigned Mask of Friendship. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by The Marquess of Exeter, Tyler Simpson, Viscount Discount, Neil Viscount Johnson, Baron Commander Two-Hander, Julian Baron Frankel, and Steve Cloutier has been elevated from the Earldom of Chester to the Marquisate of Hull. Like all other patrons, they can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica to find out more. Last time, we covered how the English colonies in the Caribbean and North America reacted to the early years of the English Civil War. Highly aware of how precarious their situations were, the colonial governments mostly did whatever they could to stay out of it, whether they backed the king or parliament. Civil disorder posed a serious risk to the welfare of the colonies, to their vital trade with Europe and each other, and to their political stability. The prospect of the Civil War gaining a colonial theatre was too nightmarish to consider. And so, apart from some colonies stating their support for one party or the other, the colonial governments remained passive during the early years of the conflict. For example, the colonies of New England, which largely sympathised with Parliament, insisted that their harbours were neutral ground, or neutral waters. On the opposite side of the spectrum of opinion, the Crown Colony of Virginia declared its loyalty to Charles I as their sovereign lord, but was fully prepared to punish royalists who were too vocal about their royalism in case it threatened public order. As we also covered last time, the colonies were very aware that the civil war back home left them incredibly vulnerable to external attack. England hadn't been this militarised in generations, certainly not since the military revolution, but all those armies and soldiers were slightly preoccupied trying to shoot and stab each other. If a foreign power, either European, colonial or indigenous, took notice of this fact, and tried to make the most of this opportunity, there wouldn't be much help coming from Europe. So with that incredibly obvious foreshadowing, let's reintroduce the Powhatan We last saw the Powhatan Confederacy, or the Powhatan Paramount Chiefdom, back in Season 1. The relationship between the new colony of Virginia and the Powhatan had never been fantastic, the First Anglo-Powhatan War shows that, but after a peace was agreed, confirmed with the famous marriage between John Rolfe and Pocahontas, relations began to improve. But tensions remained between the colonists and the natives, and in 1622 the new chief of orchestrated a daring and devastating surprise attack. Between a quarter and a third of the fledgling Virginian colony was killed, and it sparked a war which lasted a decade, between the Virginians and their native allies, and the Powhatan and their allies. The Second Anglo-Powhatan War was incredibly bitter and long-lasting. Every year, the Virginia militia marched to burn Powhatan villages and fields, and likewise, unprotected Virginian crops were destroyed by the Powhatan. In 1623, a Powhatan delegation met with the colonists to discuss peace terms, but instead they were poisoned and butchered, and in 1624, a pitched battle was narrowly avoided. Despite a temporary truce towards the end of the decade, the violence would continue until 1632, when a longer-lasting peace was agreed. But just like after the First War, The causes of the violence remained the growing Virginian population and the ever increasing acquisition of land by hook or by crook. So, 12 years later, the third Anglo Powhatan War would erupt. This war has been surprisingly difficult to find information on. It's not as popularized as the first war, which famously included Pocahontas. The second begins with a dramatic surprise attack and lasted a decade. Both appear in nearly every history of early English colonisation and early America. The Third War does appear in local histories and journals dedicated to Virginian history, and it is referenced in other works with broader focuses, but it's quite surprising how many texts just brush over it. Despite the 1632 peace, relations between the tribes of the Powhatan and the colonists were, let's say, strained throughout the rest of the 1630s, Intermittent violence was a standard part of this relationship. But, into the 1640s, the relationship began to improve. In 1640, a colonist was arrested by the colonial authorities for killing a member of the Powhatan. Not necessarily for the killing, but because it was a case of mistaken identity. Quote, Whereas certain goods being stolen by an Indian out of the plantation wherein John Burton liveth, Whereupon the said Burton, meeting with another Indian, and supposing him to be the same who had formerly stolen the said goods, the said Burton did violently kill the said Indian, which hath since upon due examination proved not the same which had stolen the goods, as aforesaid, whereby much danger may arise unto the said Burton, or some other of our nation, in revenge of the death of the said Indian, so killed by the said Burton. That's a lot of saids and whereupons in there, Welcome to early modern court records. But the takeaway is that the Englishman Burton killed an Indian because he believed he was the same man who had robbed him. But because he wasn't, his murder was unjustified and might cause a problem for the colony if the Powhatan decided to respond. However, Opechincano had one of his subordinates request mercy for Burton. Quote, Some of his great men interceded to the board on the said Burton's behalf, And have certified that they are satisfied. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, some scholars suspect that this was all part of Opechincano's plan, that this was all an act designed to get Virginia to lower its guard. Because if it was, it worked. For the next few years, relations improved, trade increased, and by 1644, members of the Powhatan Confederacy were mingling with the fringe settlements of the growing colony. And in April of that year, they suddenly drew weapons and attacked. Opechincano's surprise assault claimed up to 500 lives, even more than in 1622, but 20 years of immigration and population growth meant that in terms of the loss to the overall colony, the attack only killed about 8%, far lower than the quarter to a third killed in 1622, and it left plenty of colonists to respond. Let's talk about timing and motivation here. By this point, Opechenkano was over a hundred, and frail, and had to be carried. Perhaps he wanted to see his people secure before old age took him, and he knew that without drastic action, the colony was just going to keep growing and spreading. He still maintained a firm enough grip over the constituent tribes of the Confederacy that such a move was possible. Perhaps his successor would not have that authority, and, without united action, the tribes would be divided and conquered. There had also been a generation of young men who grew up since sixteen twenty two and they were perhaps eager to prove themselves in battle, perhaps as contemporaries certainly believed, Opecincarno knew full well that the Virginian's homeland across the sea was distracted and wasn't in a position to help. Writing five years after the fact, John Ferrer describes how quote, that some of them confessed that their great king, Opetrancano, was by some English informed, that all was under the sword in England, in their native country, and such divisions in our land, that now was his time, or never, to root out all the English. For those that they could not surprise and kill under the feigned mask of friendship and feasting, and the rest would be by wants and having no supplies from their own country, which could not help them, be suddenly consumed and famished." End quote. The question of how Opechancanough had learnt of the English Civil War was a topic of heated debate. As we covered last time, Virginia leaned royalist, but mostly tried to keep the peace between its citizens. After the 1644 attack and the end of the war in 1646, royalists pointed the finger firmly at those parliamentarians in their midst, especially those angered at Governor William Berkeley's driving out of ministers from New England. These ministers had been invited by the Puritan minority in Virginia, who were tolerated by the colonial authorities, who didn't want to rock the boat. Their eccentricities were one thing, but inviting Puritan ministers from another colony was a challenge to the conformity of the church. They were promptly ejected on the orders of the governor. Berkeley went further, forfeiting from any minister who refused to use the Book of Common Prayer the right to collect tithes. As Pestana puts it, quote, The Virginia policy was subtler than driving New England men out of its pulpits. It located the responsibility for enforcement with the individual tithe-payer, who could support a Puritan minister by continuing to pay, but cleverly exploited any lay anti-clericalism by granting the less ardent a legal way to stop paying tithes in certain instances. In many communities, the Book of Common Prayer was cherished, so punishing a clergyman who neglected it was an easy way to win widespread support for the enforcement of conformity." Anyway, this is all to say that Virginia was not a tranquil society without any political and religious divisions. Berkeley's administration was just trying to keep a lid on it. But when the Powhatan attacked, rumours began to fly. Parliamentarians and Puritans, the two traits were indistinguishable to some, were clearly acting as early modern fifth columnists, who had obviously informed Opechancano that now the time was right. Former governor of Virginia, Sir Francis Wyatt, was a notable target of these accusations, which is interesting. Firstly, Wyatt had been governor during Opechancano's first attack in 1622, hardly the stuff that friendships are made over. Secondly, Wyatt had been back in Virginia a few years before, serving as governor once again until 1641, when he was replaced by Berkeley. Thirdly, Wyatt was back in England when Opechancano launched his attack, and he had been since shortly after leaving office. Fourthly, Wyatt was dying when the Powhatan attacked, and he was buried in August that year. Suspecting that Wyatt was in any way involved just illustrates how wild the rumours were. But there were plenty of ordinary parliamentarians and Puritans who were suspected of informing on the colony. These rumors, especially regarding Wyatt, were baseless and unnecessary. Opechincano didn't need a dedicated fifth column in Virginia to tell him news from afar. The Virginians and the Powhatan were trading, they were speaking. And something like civil war is not something that could really be kept under wraps. For those accused of being traitors, a different perspective on events shines through the sources. The attack by the Powhatan was divine retribution for the expulsion of God's true servants. When Berkeley had forced the New England ministers out of the colony and pressured the settlers to conform to the established church, the good Lord sent Opechincano to smite them. According to a London-based press, at least one Puritan family in Virginia read a divine warning in of all things, blood droplets in water. The family, as the truly godly, correctly interpreted this, and fortified their house, saving them from the Powhatan, much in the same way that the Israelites warded off the Angel of Death in the Bible. Obviously, it's easy to imagine that a press based in London might have embellished some or all of this story, but the idea that the attack was divinely ordained was believed wholeheartedly by many contemporaries. One Virginian, Thomas Harrison, had been the chaplain of Berkeley, and a full-throated conformist. But, after witnessing the violence meted out against the colony, he appears to have fully accepted the belief that the attack was divine justice, and expressed this opinion. This didn't make him popular, and he was soon on a boat out of the colony. Harrison would end up serving Oliver Cromwell as his chaplain in the near future. Again, to quote Pistana, Royalist Anglicans alleged conspiracy and treachery on the part of their foes, while their opponents were on this occasion more interested in the providential meaning of events. Warring explanatory models as well as competing interpretations of the Lord's message were increasingly common as religious differences polarised. at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to an advertisement for Why Though, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection? And is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. The show exists because I inherited at least three record collections, some from random strangers, and I decided to launch a project to listen to every one of my records. Thank you for listening to my advertisement, and I hope you find the answers you seek in your record collection. Whatever his reason for launching the attack now, it's hard to imagine that Opechincano expected to completely expel the English. Virginia now numbered about 8,000 people. Far too many to completely subdue or exterminate, even if he wanted to, and it's not quite clear that he was that bloodthirsty despite what contemporaries claimed. What he was probably aiming for was to chasten the colony. They were constantly encroaching on land claimed by the Confederacy. Violence from colonists was rife, and while the English weren't as energetic in their conversion of the natives as some other colonial powers, they still did propagate Christianity where they could. But whatever Opechincano's intentions, whether he wanted to wipe out the colony entirely or just remind the Europeans to stay in their lane, after this initial attack, things went very badly for the Confederacy. With their much larger numbers, the experience of fighting Indigenous forces over the last four decades, and a seemingly unprovoked surprise attack to motivate them, the Virginians relentlessly executed the war, Berkeley embarked on a strategy of divide and conquer. Because, as we've mentioned, the Poetan Confederacy was just that, a confederacy of multiple tribal nations who spoke an eastern Algonquin language. Opechancano was of the Pamunkey, the largest and most influential of these nations, but far from the only one. The Virginians first targeted the Pamunkeys, as well as the Chickahominy's in a series of raids which burned down buildings and crops. Then they targeted the Nansimond, the Appomatok, the Wayanoke, and the actual Powhatan tribe. The death toll and the destruction was enough to shatter the bonds which bound the constituent tribes to the authority of the Pamunkey. The Weyanokes were the first to decide it was better to leave the James River region entirely, to risk Opechancano's displeasure, than to continue facing English reprisals. They moved south, into modern North Carolina, making a deal with the resident nation there, the Tuscaroras, to allow them to settle. Opechancano was indeed displeased. The Wayanokes were one of the first nations of the Confederacy, a central pillar of the paramount chiefdom his brother had forged in the 16th century. To let them leave, without a response, would spell the death knell of the Confederacy, whether they won the war against Virginia or not so Opechincano sent 80 men to find them and bring them back into the fold, by force if necessary. But the Weyanoaks were not coming back, and they expected their former leader to take this approach, and they were ready. Most of Opechincano's force was killed, and the Weyanoaks moved on again, this time to land on the west bank of the Chowan River. After a year of warfare, the Virginians were clearly winning. Opechincano's confederacy was splintering, and Virginia's leaders met to discuss how to proceed. It appears that their priority was no longer just to survive the Powhatan attack, they'd done that. Reprisals had already been carried out. Now, they were looking to the future. The Weyanoaks were not out of danger yet, because they had made the mistake of moving into lands which Virginia had been eyeing up for years. If they re-established themselves there, and made alliances with the Carolina Algonquins, they might become a threat to Virginia and future expansion. An expedition to destroy them would not only clear this obstacle, but stake Virginia's claim to this territory among the other indigenous peoples. Scouts were sent south to find out exactly where the Wayanoaks were, and to establish ties with their new neighbours. They found the Wayanoke across the Choan River, and made contact with the Choanoaks and the Yopims, who were not pleased by the arrival of the Weyanoaks, and welcomed a Virginian attack on them. An amphibious assault was planned. Eight riverboats were hired and made ready for transporting troops. About 80 troops were raised, mostly conscripted, and the expedition departed Jamestown Harbour early in 1645. They sailed 200 miles south down the coast, passing into Albemarle Sound and past Roanoke Island. It probably took between ten days and two weeks to make the journey, with one of the boats being lost en route. The Virginians made camp and met with the other indigenous tribes here, before sailing on to the Wayanoke settlement. Here, they engaged these former members of the Poetan Confederacy, and while details are, like so much of this war, hard to find, it appears that the Virginians defeated the Wayanoke and forced them away. They were able to bury their one fatality on the site, for example. Unless they drastically altered from their ordinary approach, the Virginians would have burned the buildings and the crops before sailing back the way they came. One fatality, one wounded soldier, one snake-bitten soldier, a lost ship, but otherwise a success. They returned to Virginia, and both the wounded men were treated. Back in Virginia, the war had continued much as it had been. Throughout the rest of 1645 and into 1646, the Powhatan were ground down with ceaseless raids, which devastated not just the people, settlements, and crops of the Confederacy, but also its cohesion. Opechancano's control over the tribes was already collapsing when William Berkeley led a march against his capital. The settlement was taken, and the centenarian Opechancano was taken prisoner and returned to Jamestown. He wasn't imprisoned for long, though a colonist who was assigned to guard the ancient chief, took it upon himself to shoot the old man in the back. His successor as Paramount's chief was a man called Nekatawants, whose first job was to make peace with the Virginians. Berkeley drafted a treaty which the General Assembly approved, which can be found online and a link is in this episode's description. Under the terms of the treaty, the Powhatan Confederacy and all of its members surrendered their claims to lands settled by the English, and lands they intended to settle, between the York and James Rivers, from the coast to the falls. They acknowledged Charles I as their overlord, and promised an annual tribute of twenty beaver skins, essentially a tokenistic symbol of submission. In return, the Virginians acknowledged the Powhatan right to a reservation north of the York River. Part of the treaty expresses the Virginian claim to the region they had just forced the Wayanoaks from, and forbade any of the Powhatan from residing there. Warren M. Billings puts it this way. The Treaty of 1646 marks the colonists' first real effort to devise a programme for governing Indian relations. In adopting the treaty, Berkeley and the General Assembly laid the foundation for a policy which remained in effect for nearly 30 years. As adumbrated in the treaty, the policy contained three objectives erecting a defensive perimeter on the frontier, eliminating as many contacts between the two peoples as possible, and subjugating all those Indians who lived within or near English settlements. A string of forts had been constructed in 1645. After 1646, more were added, and these became the colony's main defence against future attacks. To reduce tensions in October 1649, the Assembly outlawed the casual killing of Indians, which had been permitted in the treaty, and forbade the English from keeping Indian children, end quote. Dennis Montgomery notes that, quote, By restricting the Indians to lands north of the York, the settlers acknowledged for the first time that these original Americans had need of territory of their own, free of colonisation. Of course, that didn't last, as it almost never did in reservations granted the Indians. Human tides washed away solemn promises. End quote. Because that is the future. As Virginia continues to expand its population, more and more land will be demanded, whatever the promises made in 1646. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to a King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bracewell, David Braswell, the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz, and the Earl of St. Albans, Matt Anderson. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. Thank you to everyone who has supported me on Patreon or donated through PayPal, left a review, or told a friend about the podcast. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.